As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. Race is on, and 2023 is here, which means it won't be long before we've got car launches, pre-season testing, and then the first race in Bahrain. But what does the new season have in store for us? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to reveal all are Mark Hughes and Scott mitchell Mound. Well, Mark, hello. Happy New Year. How's 2023 treating you? Happy New Year, yes. I've just got out of my DeLorean to find out, and um, it's great, isn't it, in 2023? Not at all like the end of 22. It's a brilliant year, isn't it? Yes. And you let people see behind the curtain. This is the first thing we do. 6am, 1st of January, get up and record a podcast. That's how uh, that's how things work. And Scott Mitchell, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Ed and Mark. Um, I have to say, how amazing is that thing that happened on New Year's Eve? Just absolutely incredible. It was brilliant, wasn't it? Brilliant stuff happening. Yeah, ex- exactly. I, I, I personally couldn't believe it. So yeah, can't can't believe we're in 2023 already. It feels like it feels like there are still at least a couple of weeks of 2022 left. You did make a total idiot for yourself, um, Scott, on, on New Year's Eve. Um, I hope you, <laughs> you realise that. That's, yeah. that's the most. That's the most open thing that anyone could possibly say. <laughs> that's, like, <laughs> so, that's like a that's like a psychic doing a high probability guess than being smug. <laughs> just doesn't <laughs> just doesn't count. But yeah, great topical commentary there, Scott, and uh, that will definitely give people a real sense of time that it is indeed <laughs> 2023. But the season is indeed fast approaching, so good time to get excited. And if you are getting excited excited about the upcoming season. What better way to prepare for it than attending our first live podcast? This will be held as part of Pod Live Sport in London on Sunday, February the 12th. It's an afternoon show, starts at 1.30 and will last around 75 minutes and we'll hang around after on the off chance you'd like to say hello. I'll be there. Special guest Ted Kravitz of Sky Sports F1 fame will be there and so will the legendary Scott Mitchell Mal. Looking forward to it, Scott? I am, yeah. Um, I'm particularly looking forward to hopefully having a nice... Uh, a nice bit of audience interaction, and we've we've done obviously podcasts before where on a regular basis with the the race members club after Grand Prix, where we have the the listeners' questions as part of the podcast that we record on uh, at Grand Prix or at other times during the season. So hopefully, uh, well, I'm really excited to see how that transfers into a bit more of a dynamic in the flesh environment so that'd be really nice to sort of have some uh questions from people that are also in the room and not just names that are badly pronounced off of an email from you just because they're in the room doesn't mean i won't badly pronounce people's names that's part of the whole appeal of the, of the podcast that makes it authentic exactly exactly and it'll be good as well good chance for people to hold you to account as well and ask whatever happened to scott's people that, do you know what? Uh, when we were planning, uh, or, you know, as we've been planning what to do for this, I was thinking about, yeah, could I, could I do it? Could I? They said it couldn't be brought back. They were right because I tried and I failed. Um, but maybe for you know what for you know one one last time, one one afternoon and one afternoon only in London, 
maybe maybe we could i don't know we'll see bring the magic yeah certainly we're thinking of a few little bits and pieces we can do with some social media stuff and that kind of thing so hopefully it'll be a a good enjoyable show for everyone we're certainly looking forward to it and hopefully it'll be the first of many can lead to a world tour the race f1 podcast world tour that sounds uh, that sounds ideal well, tickets are selling fast, so make sure you head to the link in the description to snap up yours or search for Pod Live Sport and the Race F1 podcast online, and you should find where to buy tickets. So let's get back to what we're actually here for, which is looking ahead to 2023. We'll do things slightly differently on this podcast, with each of us choosing three topics to delve into. Hopefully, should set up the season nicely. So let's go to you first, Mark. What's your first choice of topic? I'm very intrigued to see where Ferrari is going to be at this coming season because amid all the upheaval of the new team boss and the firing of the old one or resignation of the old one, there's been um, what we're hearing is uh, very, very uh, excited by what's um, happening technically. And at the root of this is the power unit. And if you recall, after... Baku, after Leclerc's failure in Baku, uh, they had to run the engine um, quite in quite detuned form in, in, th- through the years H. And we're now hearing that that the extent that by which they were running that engine conservatively um, is something in the region of three-tenths of a second of lap time, which would be huge um, from the power unit alone. Um, but that's what they're saying. They feel that like they've cracked the reliability of it. Uh, they've got to the bottom of the years H issue. And that should be liberating an awful lot of um, lap time. And if into that bargain uh, we assume that they've made the, the, the usual expected off-season gains in terms of aero and, and chassis and adapting to the, the tweaked regulations, we may well have a very, very competitive Ferrari, especially early in the season, just as we did in 2022, uh, which would be... Um, quite something given the massive upheaval it's it's gone through so i'm very intrigued to see how that plays out uh, relative to the gains that no doubt mercedes and red bull will also have been making and it just holds that tantalizing promise of a, a three team a three team fight for the title so yeah that's that's what i'm sort of really really hoping is i'm um, going to translate yeah, the more teams up front, the better. And and it is an interesting one for Ferrari because, as we said when we talked about Mattia Bonotto's departure, the schedule was effectively to be a front runner again last year in 2022 and then perhaps build on that and maybe be a title contender this year. Obviously, they got ahead of themselves a little bit. So there is an upside there, isn't there, for Ferrari that's really, really tantalising. And I guess... Scott, it's a chance for those improvements that will have been made during 2022, or rather the lessons that were learned that should lead to the improvements to be implemented. Although, if they suddenly become a a championship steamroller in in 2023, the irony will be that most of that groundwork will have been laid probably under the old regime. Yeah, exactly. That's always the the risk when you have a a change. So presumably that means that uh, Fred Vasseur, who is um, uh, from uh, just a few days from now, will, will be... Uh, taking up the reins at, at Maranello for the first time. What was his first day? Is like the sixth of January or the ninth of January or something like that. Um, so presumably he's got about seven weeks to whip Ferrari into shape and make it a race team that's capable of winning a world championship. Because if the if the if, if the goal, as you said, was get more competitive in 2022 and then 2023 was meant to be the start of the title challenges then Fred's got not not going to have a honeymoon period is he unless he starts winning races straight away he's, he's got he goes straight into the to the to the really serious stuff with Ferrari I presume will be judged on whether they can fight for the title um this year which is um you know what better way to make a high pressure volatile environment even more high pressure and volatile than to give him an instant goal of winning the championship um I mean cynically with what Mark's saying there, like I, I, I get it. I agree that there's, um, there's logic to it. If they're making the progress that they're making on the engine side, then actually, that lends a bit of credibility to what they were saying at the end of the season, the 2022 season, where they talked about not having a tire management problem. They had a performance problem, and therefore they were using the tires more aggressively because they had a pace deficit. So they were having to push too hard to try and offset that. If you've got an extra two or three temps in lap time coming in in race pace because your engine's in in, in a in a higher mode then there's maybe some 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 truth to that. So 
that I, I, I buy into that. The cynical part of me is just thinking, so does this mean that Ferrari is just going to have an even more competitive car to throw away a World Championship with? You know, that that's my that's my element of Ferrari that I'm curious to see about next year. Operationally, have they got any sharper or is it just the same weaknesses rearing their head again? That's a big question, isn't it? 9th of January for Sir starts on. But Mark, it's obviously a question of how big a step they need to make to be a genuine title threat because they had the pace, but operationally they were a long way off that level. It's still almost amazing to think they only had four wins with the car pace that they had. They could have had a lot more. So is it realistic to expect that step to be there for them to not only have a car that's quick enough, which arguably is more likely, but actually be able to get the results out of it consistently enough to beat a Red Bull and a, and a Mercedes who hopefully will be up there with them. Yeah, it'd be highly unusual to go from being a little bit uh, catastrophic on the operation side to suddenly becoming the, the, the sharpest team in the pit lane. Um, but um, also when you have a pace advantage, those fault lines aren't exposed readily. Um, look, looking at... The 22 season, I mean, Ferrari lost two races definitely through strategy calls, um, but more they lost more than that through the reliability and unreliability. So this is the thing that they they are seem to be confident they have cracked. Um, so <clears throat> let's see. I think um, there were there were races that Ferrari operated um, quite well. There were. Uh, the the final one in Abu Dhabi, they managed to take advantage of Red Bull's sort of awkward dynamic there between the two stop and Perez and one stop and Verstappen, and they they did that well. So it, it's you know it, it can be done, um, and there's still a lot of work to be done, I'm sure. But um, I think you know pace buys an awful lot of um, margin on things like strategy and and calls and on. so if you have the pace you're not quite as much as under pressure as if you're just scratching. But I think it would be um, optimistic to assume that they're, they're, they're going to have more pace than Red Bull or even Mercedes. But if they can be competitive and be fighting it out, that's when we're going to see those stresses applied. And that's when um, the scale of Frederick's uh, job will become clear. Yeah, it's going to be a huge talking point in the early stages of next season. Scott, do you want to go next? What's your first choice? Uh, yeah, actually, that, um, that that's very, very good podcasting from Mark there because he has hinted at my my question there perfectly. So a nice segue. My Mine is a bit unoriginal, but it's has Mercedes got its house in order? Has it actually addressed what it needed to address? There were, there were a lot of things with the 2023 car that they wanted to make sure was better than the 2022 car so I'm curious to see you know what what direction are they going to go with aerodynamically are there going to be really big visible changes or are we going to be fascinated to find out if it's more architectural more more intricate underneath that that they've been that they've been working on is that going to result in a package that takes ages to to figure out or is it going to have a load of potential that gets unlocked early on are the other little niggling problems that they've had like the the brake separation for example the fact that it was so draggy um are all these things going to going to be better so if i was to sum all that up in sort of one little snappy bit it's is mercedes going to be back to a proper level of competitiveness or is this going to be a continuation of the 2022 struggles and are they going to just be a, a sporadic threat at the front they're an interesting inversion of ferrari aren't they mark because Ferrari operationally wasn't there but did have the pace Mercedes didn't have the pace but by and large there was the occasional question mark and slip but they were pretty good at getting the best out of the out of the car in terms of results although that was often relatively easy for them particularly in that period when they were in no man's land certainly on race pace when finishing fifth and sixth was almost what you could do with being <laughs> you could be half a second quicker or half a second slower and you'd still be in that that fifth sixth place but it is a mirror image almost of Ferrari isn't it? It is, yeah. I mean, the the one strategy, um, black eye would probably be the tyre choice in Mexico when they had real pace and then sort of almost give it away through the, the, the an over-conservative tyre choice. But uh, generally, yeah, it, it, it operated okay. Um, I think although there were many symptoms of, uh, of what was wrong with the 22 car, they all 
pretty much seemed to originate from one place, which was that it was designed around a, a very uh, low ride height and that didn't take into account the, the, the porpoising problem. And as a result of that, it didn't have the suspension, the rear suspension range necessary to get it out of that problem. And because it had to be run higher than it was designed to run, it, the underfloor didn't give the downforce that was required. So it had to run bigger wings. Hence, it was very draggy on the straights. So all of those things, and then the ride came from the stiff suspension that had had to be run because it didn't have enough travel, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those things, the, the, there appeared to be lots wrong with the car, lots of symptoms that, that just didn't perform well. Um, but I think they all came from the same place. And so that, that would give me, if I was Mercedes, I would be cautiously optimistic that having understood the root of the problem, um, they can get back to designing you know, race-winning, championship-contending cars again. And that would be my hope, obviously, because um, the more competition we have up the front, the better the season we're going to have. I think the positive thing is they did at least seem to have a reasonable understanding of where the car was going to be in trouble or go well late in the season. They had their, their kind of virtual car model that they were able to compare uh, simulations with, etc. So a lot of work will have been done at that team in terms of learning how to really get to the root of what's triggering the problem because there's multiple things that can contribute to the the porpoising phenomenon and obviously there's some some key elements of the architecture of the car that will that will change i guess scott it's the question of does a does a really bad year by a, a team standards although pretty good <laughs> good year still by by normal standards usually lead to uh to, to a good response you could argue they've learned probably more than most last season but at the same time you could argue that they knew less than most about this particular car challenge going into the year based on how wrong they got it yeah there, there is a, there is an element that they were talking up quite a lot at the end of last year where they were like um that this has been a big opportunity for them obviously this i think the 2022 season was an aggressive manifestation of that Nicky Lauder favourite, which is that you you learn more on your bad days than when you lose. Um, I don't think anyone at Mercedes really wanted to test that adage to its absolute limits, but I suppose that 2022 was about as difficult as it's it's been for Mercedes in in, in about a decade. Um, so I think there's um, I think the, I think the core thing is that there were were obviously specific reasons that the um, that that the car had the problems that it had in 2022. If it was just a little bit slow you know just a just oh, you know it, it felt really good it was just a little bit slow or they didn't see any obvious um any obvious problems with it no specific areas to to improve i think then i'd be more concerned because then i'd be a bit wary that that technical structure at mercedes actually doesn't really know how to attack these new regs and they're just a little bit behind um rebel and ferrari but as there are some specific issues to tackle as long as they've understood them as mark was saying then there is reason to think that actually a, a, a good but not very good year in 2022 can lead to a very good year in 2023 because they've got an okay platform to build from and a bunch of what would I would imagine is fairly low-hanging fruit technically. Not low-hanging enough for you to grab at during the 2022 season, but with a few months of proper work behind the scenes and a winter to redo the car then yeah, you can absolutely snatch at that. So I, I would be, I would share that optimism that that they should be um, making a big step in 2023. But that's why I picked it as a as a question because I think it is going to be one of the defining questions of the of the new season. Yeah, and the other factor to consider is obviously from pretty early on, Mercedes was largely focused on 2023. They were doing a lot of work with the 2022 car, obviously, but. By the time they realised how big a hole they were in, they knew that no matter what they did in 22, they weren't going to recover to be able to be a championship winner that year. So they could accept being quite strategic with what they did in terms of making sure that the R&D times going into the 23 car as well and stuff they did on 2022 could feed into that. It's a small advantage to, to be able to have that mindset, but they certainly weren't distracted by a, a championship fight and they realised that quite early on. So there's always a, a benefit for that. Right, shall I go next? I'm going to go with completing the set of the big three teams, a Red Bull question, which is what I'm calling Red Bull versus ATR. ATR are the aerodynamic testing rules. And of course, they've had that 10% uh, step reduction 
as a punishment for the cost cap breach last year. And that's obviously on top of the fact they had the least wind tunnel and CFD items for uh, you know, going into to 2023 anyway, given that they've won the Constructors' Championship. And obviously, because they were in a strong position in the Championship, they were limited in the second half of last year uh, as well. So it's a really interesting question because people kept asking how much of a difference will this make and people wanting to put lap times on it, etc. And it stands to reason that if you've got less wind tunnel and CFD time, you'll do less work and you should make less progress. But the really interesting thing is that it's it's not a it's not a linear thing in terms of this amount gives you this much lap time. I remember one of the Mercedes guys, either plus James Allison or Shovelin or someone like that, had mentioned that, well, if you could say this much ATR means this much performance, then Williams would probably be a lot faster than they are. So it's not quite that simple but one of the interesting things that has been said is that what it does stop you from doing is it it kind of narrows your focus that little bit more so you might not do I mean you'll have kind of the core stuff you want to simulate but then you have some of the luxury stuff some of the other things you'll explore so it might it might narrow their options a little bit and it's it's one of those interesting things that could trip up a team if they don't just look at something that teaches them something essential about the car that really matters because there's a saying Gary Anderson has which is that no one knows 100% what makes their car fast or slow obviously the best teams know the most amount but the unknowns are the things that can trip you up and there can be to uh to mangle a quote unknown unknowns out there that that trip you up so I'm really interested to see how it plays out Red Bull should be very very strong they had a great season last year a great foundation to build on and I'm not saying that the ATR limitation will will hobble them massively, but there is the potential for it to have a, a, a big influence, and this is why it would be one of the interesting technical stories of the year. When do you think we'll actually get an answer to that question then? Because I'm thinking it's not going to manifest itself until the second half of the season because my and, the, and this is just my logic in terms of the, the timeline to develop a, an F1 car and when that penalty came in, etc., I would imagine that the initial version of the 2023 Red Bull will be not unaffected, but relatively unaffected because the the gestation period for, for even a carryover design is so long that the work on that car would have been done two, three, four months. It would have been under a reasonable amount of development before they had that ATR limit um, reduced. Um, but the development through the year will definitely be affected because not only not only do they have that reduced ATR allowance through the majority of 2023 it's obviously in place now so it's the initial upgrades to the 2023 car and then it's the way it's developed through the season that it gets affected and then at at the same time that's the initial work that should be going into the 2024 car too so I see that I see the period of when Red Bull will feel the effects of the ATR stuff as maybe sort of April, May 2023, that's a bit of an arbitrary one, but sort of the second quarter of 2023 through to the middle of 2024, for example. That that would be how I would look at when we'll get the answer to that question. But what do you two think? It's, it's absolutely going to be a slow burn, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the Red Bull had a overall a huge advantage last year, uh, but this is going to cut into it a lot. I mean, you the, 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 these forgetting, putting aside the cost cap penalty aspect of it just the 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 constructors championship reduction um that that regulation was put in place more or less to ensure you don't have the same title winner for year after year after year it it, it hasn't been designed to to just be a little bit of an inconvenience it's been designed to actually be you know as a significant um you know thing to jump through and and you're going to have to be pretty smart to overcome the effects of it so that in combination with the fact that there is reason to believe that both mercedes and ferrari have got a a pretty well known route to finding a big chunk of performance um a pretty well defined route uh it does does sort of paint a picture that red bull is going to have a tough time not a tough time in terms of being competitive, but a tough time in replicating the dominance that it had in 2022. And um, and I think, yes, it will all play its part in uh, the, the the wind tunnel and other simulation time um, and capacity reductions will, I, I think they, they will definitely feel it. Well, it's a really interesting point because obviously the closer it is, the more significant it can be because if you could quantify it in lap time, 
if it's really close, if you're a tenth of a second slower even at the end of the year compared to where you would have been, that could be enough to swing a championship one way or the other or the other if it's if it's tight. Whereas if you've got the kind of advantage that they had for most of this year, it's going to be fairly trivial. So that there's there's the question of the magnitude of it and also the context of it. So there's kind of two inputs to to decide that. But certainly I've I've never really accepted the fact that people think it's just a slap on the wrist because it will make a significant difference and they'll have had to invest a lot of time and thought into how best to to use their available wind tunnel and CFD time and and and, and reallocate it just to make sure they they get the the optimum effect o- over the over the period. But where it'll really hurt them is if they trip up and early in the season that there's some there's something that's not working as hoped it shouldn't happen but you never know and so if there's troubleshooting that's needed major troubleshooting then that'll really really uh do some damage so yeah it, it's going to take a long time before that story plays out but it's something that's that's going to have an impact on on this season as scott explained the seasons beyond looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Let's move on to round two now. Mark, would you like to... Pick your second topic. Yeah, one of the stories at the end of last year, among all those um, team principal shenanigans, um, was the uh, resignation of, um, or I don't know, were they resigned or did, were they invited to resign? Uh, the Williams team principal and the technical director, Jos um, Capito and uh, FX Dimasian. And it really just drew a big red line under the question mark of Williams. Where, what's its direction? Where is it going? Um, it was disappointing in 22 to see that it's modest progress over the last few years from the nadir of 2019. It had um, been arrested and it didn't, it didn't make any In fact, it went backwards slightly in 22 compared to 21. That was very disappointing to see. Um was that just a blip and that the, the what was being put in place behind the scenes is you know going to play out in in a positive way or were they heading in the wrong direction and that's why they've gone and it's quite worrying because the you know the team has got very few sponsors um it's you know the the, the level of competitiveness of its cars has been poor so it's not getting many um it's not getting much prize money and it's got a big cost base. It's got a big manufacturing base. So yes, it's I, I'm concerned about Williams, and I I really would like um, to to well, I would hope to see a big upswing in its competitiveness. But I'm not at all optimistic. I'm uh, concerned about that it uh, lacks direction, and um, if it if it has had a, a wholesale change, maybe that that was. What was needed, but it does suggest that um, if they've been heading in the wrong direction for the last year, then um, when they're not in for a, a good twenty-three. I'm I'm worried and about how much has gone on behind the scenes in terms of who else has left that obviously is less of a high-profile headline departure. I've heard quite a few stories of the types of people that have either been removed over the last sort of twelve to eighteen months or have just walked away. Um, from from all as- aspects of the Williams business as well, so not just not just race team, but um, you know on the the the, the marketing side, comms side, all, all the different elements of of Williams has it's not been gutted, but there have been there have been a lot of people that have cropped up elsewhere, and I think um, I think the Capito era, short as it was, was very divisive internally. I think he did have some people in the team that did buy into it and thought actually, yeah. Um, there's a there's an inherent problem within Williams, and it's actually quite good that someone, even if he's a bit, um, what's the what's the polite way of putting it, um, 
yeah, a, like a, a divisive is the best word, but if he's just a little bit unusual in the way that he goes about things, I think you had some people that thought, well, unorthodox methods are fine because something needs to change. But then there were a lot of people in the team that were resistant to that. Um, so I think a lot of people, I think there's certainly been a decent turnover of staff there. And unless Williams, unless the Capito exiting and the person who replaces him creates a bit of a shift in narrative around that team I don't really see why a lot of people would want to go there and I think that's key to whatever happens next um for for Williams so just to sort of tack a little bit of a extra point on to to, to Mark's question about Williams I'm very very curious to see what other announcements there might be from Williams through the year can they bolster their ranks is there are there any signs that the really negative atmosphere that seemed to permeate that team as especially as 2022 went on because of Capito's methods and the fact that he was such a divisive character has has that been convincingly washed away to a point where people want to go there and it's an attractive place again or is it just gonna is it just gonna meander a little bit for a while with a bit more of a long-term damage from a slightly problematic leadership. I I know obviously in the announcement that we had toward in, in December um about Capito and FX leaving, there was a quote I think from Capito where he said something along the lines of he's been able to lay the foundations for the team's revival. But that's quite a generous way of looking at it and actually his critics inside and outside of the team would say it's been the opposite. He's pushed Williams further than ever from being able to rebuild. So yeah, what happens to them over the course of 2023 could define that team's entire recovery. I think what's pretty clear is there's a discontinuity there, and that's the biggest concern because Dalton took it over all the initial things they were doing, clearing debts, just tidying up some of the infrastructure and dealing with some of the upgrades they needed to do was all in the right direction. But then you needed to start with the longer-term stuff, and that was what Capito was always talking about, the long-term. He was talking five-year, ten-years plans for to, to get Williams back to where it needed to be. But effectively... It feels like the last couple of years have just been thrown away with this because it's clearly going to be some kind of change of of direction. So that's that's really quite worrying because we always hear as well about how the way teams start, rule cycles and that kind of thing often dictates how they do for the long term. And they've not probably made the absolute most of this. They were never going to be leaping suddenly up to third or fourth best, but they started at the back in this rule cycle and then we're going to see some upheaval and changes and the next big rules overhaul in 26, it might even be too late to be in a good position or the position they should be for that. So again, we're talking long-term things here. So it's not, again, not just a question of 23. It's a question of the next, the next five years of Williams. So yeah, quite a concerning one there. I, I don't really see where exactly what Williams is doing. It may be that they make some new appointments and you think, oh, that all makes sense. That's logical that this is a good direction. But then again, that's what seemed to be the case when Capito came and Scott, would you like to pick your second item? Yeah, I'm going to go with something that um, is a bit more uh, potentially explosive, either in a in a very good way or potentially a very bad way. So I'm really curious to see how the Fernando Alonso move to Aston Martin plays out, um, partly because Alonso has been absolutely fascinating to follow since he came back into to, to F1 um, and has been performing at a very high level. And ultimately, he is still motivated by the tiny possibility and he admits however slim the chances he will hold on to it of uh, becoming a, a you know w- winning more races and becoming a three-time world champion so he is going to Aston Martin to get what I am sure will be a very rewarding paycheck but he is adamant that there is a competitive motivation there and we know what Alonso's like as a character so he's not going to accept another season or multiple seasons like Aston Martin had in 2022 now, there is huge potential in that project. So if you marry the Lawrence Stroll, Aston Martin ambition with the people that they've recruited in the technical team, the race operational team, Alonso himself, you have all the ingredients there with Alonso still performing at an incredibly high level for that to be a stunningly, stunningly good relationship. But when was the last time Fernando Alonso made a career move that emphatically worked out for, for the better? Um, and given the... Given the situation that exists within that team, with the um, the boss's son being in the other seat as well, I just think there are the ingredients there with uh, a quite impatient owner 
a team that has underperformed, a driver that does have a tendency to have increasingly tense relationships, two drivers that are pretty willing to clash with their teammates on occasion, and a slightly awkward dynamic with that with the strolls being there. It also has the uh, the the potent the potential to be um, be explosive for absolutely the wrong reason. So and and I think. We won't get an emphatic answer either way, or I suspect we won't get an emphatic answer either way in 2023, but we'll see the way it starts to go early on. So I'm really, really fascinated to see how that plays out for better or worse. And we know that in 23, there's no reason to expect Aston to be a huge amount better. I think they will be stronger, but if you look at their performance potential, they're still working on their new factory. They're moving into that next year, the wind tunnel. The wind tunnel will be up and running the year after. So it's still a team that's in this transition period. And if you look at it, there's certainly five teams. They, there's no reason why they should be ahead of. So that's the, the big three and then McLaren and, and Alpine. And then they're in that group with, you know, Alfa Romeo's got a good investment there and are coming on. Alfa Tauri obviously have got the, the partnership with Red Bull, which which helps them. So... Yeah, it's it, it's difficult to see a scenario where Aston Martin are brilliant in 23, even though that team's got a bit of a knack for overachieving historically. How do you think that will play out, Mark? I think quite reasonably he should be expecting um, a significant jump from 2022 from the team because for similar reasons to Mercedes, they, they, they're, the quality of their season was defined by one thing which they got wrong, uh, which couldn't be corrected because of the hard points of design of the the car and with that understood you would expect a significant um, jump and if you um, put a significant jump on where they were they, they they should be competing at the head of that midfield they should be competing with McLaren and Alpine there's no reason why they shouldn't be and if they're not I would suspect he's going to be disappointed and um, when he's disappointed he, he he's certainly not shy about pointing out where he thinks the the problems lie and that's where he's going to need a little bit of um, managing let's say and but you know I think if if the the progress is evident and it's gone in the right direction and I, I, I suspect it will do I suspect that we're going to see a, a more respectable performance from Aston um, this year I think you'll be fine I, I you know I think any sort of teammate niggles and the, 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 will, will just be brushed aside. It's when it starts, to, if two or three years down the line, it starts becoming serious and, um, you know, contender for wins, that's that's when you think you're going to see uh, any any potential fireworks. But I, I'm not expecting anything explosive straight away, let's say. Um Maybe that's just me being optimistic, and um, but I I I am sort of I'm erring towards the, the thinking that the Aston is going to be a significantly improved performer in 23, and that Alonso is going to go with it. Yeah, I think it'll certainly be stronger, and they did come on quite strongly in the back end of the year. Almost got six in the championship, which is a remarkable turnaround from where they were early on in the year. But yes, it's it's another one of those long term projects. I'll go with my second choice, which is a fairly broad one, but it's about what the technical trends will be in terms of what we'll see in terms of the car concepts. There's a few kind of basic trends we know everyone's going to favour. I think teams are quite keen to get those front wheels as far forward as possible to uh, to mean they get the the best possible airflow to the leading edge of the floor and those crucial floor fences at the front are really really important and learning how to 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 tune those it's difficult because we always we always focus on what we can see because we can see it so you get the side pod concepts but it's really what's going on under the floor the bits you can't see and those those complicated interacting airflows under the car the the kind of the 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 compression and the expansion that's the key to these uh to these ground effects cars is is a very it's been shown to be a very complex thing recently, so that's the that's the area where the, the the battle will will play out. I am fairly hopeful we will still see reasonable diversity in the shapes of the cars. I don't think we'll have a season where, if you painted all the cars white, they'd all be indistinguishable uh, from each other, which which is positive. But yeah, how much convergence will there be? What will be the the, the big areas of, of focus and and development i guess mark it's the nature of it isn't it as we move into the second year it's going to be ever more detail work and less those broad conceptual brush strokes that we can see 
Yes, and I think actually the two fastest cars are 22, the Red Bull and the Ferrari, um, which, you know, op- opted for quite different aerodynamic over the upper bodywork philosophies. Um, I think that's quite interesting because neither of them are, are, are definitively better than the other. Yes, the Red Bull ended up a, lot of a faster car, but if we factor into that the Ferrari power unit problems, um, I, I think it's going to be quite interesting because the, 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 the key strength of the Red Bull was straight-line speed, obviously, and how much of its downforce it retained at slow corners, so as the ride height comes up and in slow corners. And that, that was a key area of advantage. The advantage of the Ferrari philosophy was it gives you much more top-end downforce, high, medium and high-speed downforce. It's just got more of it. Um, so the different track layouts sort of, you know, it, it will phase in and out of, of which of those two approaches works best. But I don't think one of them is inherently better than the other. And it'll be interesting to see um, which direction people go down, because obviously I would think there's no reason for Ferrari to suddenly think, well, we weren't as good as Red Bull, let's let's follow Red Bull. I'm sure they're not going to do that. I'm sure they're going to plow on with their own um, philosophy. And um, Red Bull, no reason to think that the lack of, you know, the the, the the edge of the high-speed downforce that the Ferrari had, it was debilitating. So I'm sure they're going to continue with their own philosophy. Um, it's more what everybody else does, really, in which direction they go, because there's clearly more than one way to do this. And um, I think the one of the secrets of the Red Bull was just in uh, its, its rear suspension, the amount of travel that it had given it, which allowed it to uh, work over a different range of ride heights um, without losing a whole ton of downforce. And um, yeah, I think we're probably going to see uh, teams, re- pro- probably pretty much everyone redoing their rear suspension to have something more like the Red Bull. Can I uh, can I just throw a slightly different kind of technical thing into the mix on, on this subject? I'd be fascinated to learn during the course of 2023 what the bigger picture stuff is that's been been worked on because i feel like 2023 is going to be quite a big year for really fleshing out the um the direction for 2026 and there are some really interesting things going on because that we're obviously learning a lot about these regulations and um what kind of cars we're going to have this year i think is going to be a really big clues to what the what the potential is with the the, the formula that was created for 2022 so whether they're too too prescriptive whether we're going to have um as much raceability this year as we had last year um so that'll probably you know that is going to ultimately inform what direction f1 wants to commit to to 2026 which it it does have to do sooner rather than later but there's also already talk about all the other different factors that will come in for 2026 like um movable aerodynamics and making the cars smaller and lighter which you know how many times have we asked for that on on this podcast so just on that that just jumped out to me as a as a technical factor i i don't i don't think necessarily we'll have an absolutely 100 nailed down 2026 car concept during the course of 2023 but i think we should get close because they've talked about this um at length haven't they the the car and engine package for 26 so i'm i'm curious to see if there's a longer term technical trend that emerges this year um I think we'd all like to see smaller and lighter cars. Um, the difficulty, obviously, is that they're hybrids, so that's it, it, it's a very difficult um, problem to 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 sort of grasp to, to to get your arms around because it's so fundamental to this you know, philosophy of car. Uh, yeah, I, I think any any car that's sort of pushing eight hundred kilos at the start of the race and has got a thousand horsepower and all that torque. It's not going to be necessarily the the most agile and raceable and the the you know the most kind on its tires, and that's that's really where we're going to be looking for improvement. So it's quite an intractable problem, but let's see what um, if there can be any ingenious solutions or are there any new technologies coming forward that mitigate against those problems. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. 
That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Let's move on to round three of our big questions for 2023. Mark, what's your final choice for this podcast? Well, Scott touched on it earlier with the um, the Alonso Stroll lineup, but um, I th- the, the, there were a few, I think, um, potential hotspots. And um, there were certainly some eyebrows raised when it was announced that Nico Hulkenberg was going to be joining Kevin Magnussen at Haas given that they'd had a little bit of history in the past together. But it's it, that's not the only one. And I actually think that that one won't be that serious. I think they'll actually rub along okay. Um, they, they're, they're both hard racers. And, you know, the, the, the previous incidents, uh, or one in particular, um, which which elicited that great quote from K-Mag in response, Um <laughs> I think that that's just in the nature of just normal competitive niggle, really. Um, I think the more fundamental ones may be what happens with Lewis Hamilton, George Russell, when, if the Mercedes is suddenly a world title contending car. Um, that dynamic probably is going to take on a, a very uh, different nature to, to what we saw in 2022. Um, and I think there's... There's potential there for um, disquiet. I don't think it'll boil over anything poisonous, but I I think you may see a hardening in attitudes of each driver as they realise that the other one is, you know, in the way of of the goal, whereas before they were able to think of the other one as contributing towards the goal uh, equally. Um, The other one... um, this this is more a, a personal thing. Is the um, the the combination of the Alpine of um, Esteban Ocon and Pierre Gasly, who have got personal animosity going back years, back to karting days, and uh, yeah, it's it's one thing to say we'll be professional about it and we'll we, we will work together, and I'm sure they intend to do that, but I just don't see that that chemistry is ever going to be anything other than very distant and if if there are competitive moments of tension that's when those things might boil over so yeah i think there are there are a few little potential hot spots in it in terms of the pairings on the grid uh, in addition to just the alonso and stroll one so come on scott who's going to be the first pair of teammates to drive into each other and fall out <laughs> um the, the the ocon gasly one does have serious potential for that doesn't it um it would be particularly galling for, for for Alpine for them to collide pointlessly at the fir- very first race just to maximise the tension between the two of them. But then also Gasly picks up a ban because he's so close to it with the licence penalty points at the moment. Just for just just for absolute peak disruption and problems, that would be um, that would be quite amusing. I think um, one of the in all seriousness, one of the reasons I would pick that for sort of the most likely to immediately combust is. It's also the lineup that has the most interest for each driver to to really, um, you know, land an early blow and 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 prove that they're going to lead the team. 
because it's the most evenly matched one in terms of their positions within within the team. Um, obviously, Ocon is the incumbent driver at Alpine, but but Gasly's going there with the ambition of establishing himself as a as a, a proper front running F one driver. Whereas at Mercedes, you've still got a little bit of you know the the master and the apprentice vibe with Hamilton and Russell, and there's some just sort of inherent respect there, and it's carried over from last season. Um, I I agree with Mark. I don't really see Hulk and K Mag being necessarily too problematic. Um, Ocon and Gasly just that just feels like the one that's got the most potential to ignite. I feel like the Haas drivers, if they were to have a collision, they'd kind of do it. They'd have an uncomfortable conversation with Gunter Steiner that will lead to a, a difficult half hour in the motorhome, and then it'll sort of be <laughs> be dealt with almost because I, I don't think, as we said, that there isn't that really underlying narrative between them in any real, uh, real way. Yes, there was a flashing point in the past in Hungary, but yeah, it's, it's not like the the Alpine one. But it, it is interesting when you get these battles because in every single team, every driver expects to become the number one driver. Because it's just the one of the natures of uh, of Formula One and, and a lot of motorsport categories is you do have teammates, and unless you're sharing the car with them, they are also a rival, and that creates really fascinating dynamics. That's what makes the Mercedes one interesting because if they do have a championship winning car, Hamilton will be a little bit wary about the, the threat of Russell, but he will be quite buoyed by the fact that ultimately last season he did get on top of of Russell but Russell will be thinking right this is my chance to do it but you almost get rather than these outright flashpoints in that sort of situation you just get these little things don't you Mark just little areas where they're a little bit it's more of a subtle war you'd expect between teammates I don't think it would go necessarily like the Hamilton Rosberg one say when I think it would be a different kind of of tension yeah it's um you, you, you'll just hear it in little off, off, off the cuff comments um, that are little, little, little bombs, just little hand grenades um, designed to send a message. Um, you used to hear it a lot in the Hamilton Rosberg days, as you said. I uh, don't think it'll be quite like that, but yeah, there'll there'll be more of that certainly this year than there was last. I always remember the one with uh, Hamilton in fourteen, where um, really early on when. Um, uh, sort of Hamilton made the comment about, well, you work out how to be really quick, and then today someone just looks at all your data and copies you, and it's like oh, that's quite a pointed, uh, pointed uh, <laughs> comment, which kind of prefigured some of the stuff that was to to come. But yeah, I, th- I think um, that'd be the fascinating thing. All of these dynamics are a little bit different in all the ten teams, and the way that that things may erupt will be very different. Some will have massive eruptions and falling out. Some will just be much more slow burn and, and subtle. And that's one of the things that makes uh, F1 so fascinating. Scott, what's your final item? Well, we have a bit more of an interesting rookie crop uh, this year. No disrespect to Joe Guan Yu, but it's um, obviously always nice when you have multiple rookies step into F1, see how they fare. I am fascinated to find out how good Oscar Piastri really is because he's someone who I've been increasingly impressed by, someone who has a trait that I really admire, which is they get better as the challenge gets harder and the car gets faster. That's always, obviously, it's a good sign in general because it means you are progressing as you step through the ranks, but it, he is he's someone who exhibits the exactly the right traits to thrive in F1 because just that ability to get your head around the new challenges of a bigger more powerful car different championship different tires all of this the way you race the way you conduct yourself um the traits that you you show behind the scenes as well he's he seems to tick all of those boxes so he's someone who I thought if someone is going to step up into formula 1 and make their mark he ticks all of those boxes in advance but you never know until they actually get there how good they're going to be plus he's had the year on the sidelines in 2022 plus the fact that the year he spent the team he spent that year with testing their old cars Alpine that's not the team he's going to be racing with in 2023 so he's got to get used to a new environment uh, environment at McLaren relatively limited mileage he obviously he's done he's already done some testing in the 21 car the 21 mclaren he did the 2022 car run in the postseason test and i think he'll be out in the 21 car over the winter as well but then it's only one and a half days in the actual 23 car so loads of question marks there and obviously he steps into a role a seat vacated by daniel ricardo who struggled a lot alongside lando norris who's an established megastar absolutely 
you know, really, really close to being part of that ultra elite group of F1 drivers. But because we haven't seen him fight for wins, we can't say that 100%. So big challenge for Piastri. A lot of fuss made over him. McLaren did quite a lot to get him. He's burned his bridges at Alpine to get there. So it's just an absolutely fascinating scenario. And the success of which lives or dies entirely on how good he is in, in 2023, basically. I'm, you know, his, his McLaren and F1 career isn't over entirely if he has a bad year alongside Norris this year, but it won't, it will absolutely be shaky. And I think, I honestly think he's under a lot of pressure to go out and really, really show that he was worth all the fuss through the course of 2023. That doesn't mean blow Norris away from the first weekend, but over the course of 2023 as a whole, Big year for Piastri, big year for McLaren. Just super fascinated to see how that plays out. Yeah, he could do with a few markers early on, couldn't he, just to ease that pressure? Yeah, exactly. I don't think it would be reasonable to expect him to be operating at Lando's Norris every every week, <laughs> Lando Norris's level every single weekend. Um, but I think we need to see uh, the peaks to confirm the, 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 the potential that everyone believes he has. Um, and and that would be enough to to keep, to keep the faith for the team to keep the faith and for you know the, the the general perception to that he's a megastar of the future to to still hold and still have credibility, but to expect to come in and go head to head with Landon Norris and come out on top in your rookie season it just it's not a it's not a reasonable expectation. I don't think that will be. The target, and I, I don't think it should be. I think it will just be to play yourself in, to learn about Formula One, and to show on occasion that you are absolutely at the same level as Lando, um, given the right set of circumstances. And once you've filled up all, all those data banks after a year or two, then you might be ready to go ahead to head one. And it's an interesting scenario for Norris, though, isn't it, Scott? This is the first time he's been the senior partner in a team. I mean, yes, obviously, going into last year, he'd asserted himself over Ricardo, but that was a battle he he kind of already won, having been the the junior partner. But now this is Norris's team; he is the focal point. So it's the first time in his career he's experienced that. Yeah, it is. Um, it is very interesting. Um, good chance for for Lando to prove that everything he's learned over the last few seasons can translate into emphatically leading a team because he's almost he's sort of become team leader by proxy purely because obviously the Ricardo performance hasn't been there but we know that Ricardo had a positive impact on that team off track you know he the way he the way he worked in the garage the way he worked in debriefs the way he was at the factory he was obviously a commercial dream as well so they still got not quite their money's worth out of him, but they got a lot of, they, they definitely got their money's worth out of Ricardo for, in an off-track sense. And though that will be elements that Lando theoretically can uh, pick up now that Ricardo's not there as Piastri finds his feet. But it's not an absolute given. Like the, the area that Norris can unquestionably lead McLaren is on track. But how will he manage that off-track stuff? Because... You could argue, and he may well feel feel this way, he was obviously leading the team to a good degree off track anyway. You know, his technical feedback is said to be very good. He's comfortable there. He's, he's found his voice internally. He's, he's got a, a bit more confidence than he had in his first year or two. But, the, but there was still a really, really established, experienced, confident, popular driver in the team as well that was doing all that stuff alongside him. So if not the type of work that Norris does changes the workload itself will because he will be lent on more. So how he copes with that is going to be really interesting. That'll be, that could be the final part of his evolution into an absolute top line driver. Will, will he be able to handle that extra pressure and expectation? My gut feeling is he will based because obviously he's been very impressive in all other aspects so far, but yeah, that's a, that's a way he will be tested this year. We should perhaps tag on as a slight quick addendum to this because we haven't talked about it on the podcast before. Alex Pillow is going to be reserve driver at McLaren next year, or one of the reserve drivers <laughs> next year. So how does he fit into all of this, Scott? Is he just a, a convenience reserve driver and he has a super license and he'll be around some of the time outside of IndyCar commitments? Or is, is he lurking in the wings to sweep in if Piastri tanks? <laughs> I think, um, I honestly think it's a bit more that it's all part of the um, the, the bigger plan 
it's a carrot basically to tempt uh, Pelo to the to the McLaren organization as a whole. It's a very, very, very useful asset for Zach Brown to have in any negotiations with a driver. Um, but he's obviously also impressed. You wouldn't put someone in as a reserve driver if they hadn't done a good job in the 2021 car tests and the FP1 outing that he had um, in Austin. So I think there is a potential longer term thing here where he might become a more serious F1 option if Piastri doesn't work out and Polo shows that he's up to it and they absolutely get him across from, from Chip Ganassi Racing. But I don't think it's absolutely nailed on. At the moment, it feels a bit more of a, this is how we want to use him in an F1 context and it's a, it's a thing that benefits everybody. Well, for my final choice, I'm going to go with the other rookies, Nick DeVries and Logan Sargent, and how they get on. Very different scenarios for those two. Obviously, Nick DeVries had that great ninth place at Monza on his standing F1 debut. Uh, last year he's got in with Red Bull now so interesting opportunity he's got here looked like he might have missed the F1 boat but he's in a place whereby if he excels for a year or two he could theoretically get a path into Red Bull that that's probably a a long shot but he showed he's got the right sort of mentality and experience to to do a decent job in Formula 1 Obviously, the big question there is that there's a difference between kind of being a full season driver and uh, and a stand. I thought he did a brilliant job to make the most of that opportunity at Monza. Yeah, it was the ideal weekend, really, because the Williams was pretty much at its best at Monza. He'd driven the Aston Martin in FP1. He'd driven the Williams earlier in the season. But even so, I thought it was a real sort of cometh the man moment where it's like, right, jump in the car, do the job, you're probably going to guarantee yourself a drive for next year. And Logan Sargent's a really interesting one because he's somebody who's, at times in his career, been very, very highly rated, particularly in karting. His single-seater career almost stalled, but was revived when Williams picked him up. He almost got the Williams drive by default. Yes, he performed very well in in F2, albeit obviously he didn't win the championship. There's a brief moment where it looked like he might be about to go on a run of dominance, but he, but he didn't. But he's a driver who could go either way in, in Formula 1. There could be quite a big upside there, but also he'll be in a in a team that's likely to be in the lower reaches of the of the grid. Which of those two, Mark, if we assume there's there's a bit of a rookie of the year battle between those three, which of those two do you think is more likely to to challenge Piastri for, for that honour if we assume that Piastri is the, the favourite to be the, the star rookie? Um, I, I guess it would be Nick, um, just because he's in a... A better environment, really. Um, he's he's in a um, you know a, a, a role where he's been taken on um, for his performance alone, and he, he, the, the the team is you know structured in such a way that um, young drivers are given a hell of a lot of support, and you know that that's what they they're used to dealing with. So I think. He will be in a very sympathetic environment, actually. Once he once he gets established there, um, I think in in the terms of his teammate with the Yuki Sonoda, um, I think you've got got a good cooperative guy there that he'll be able to learn a lot from just from studying his data because he's he is quick when uh, when everything goes right from, um, and he's a smart cookie. He's, he's somebody that will, I think, um, logically progress. Um, as as for Sergeant, I just worry about the environment that he's going into because of what we talked about earlier. The, where where is the is is the team at? What's it's um, what's going to be the ambience there? And you know the the last thing you need as a rookie is is for all sorts of undercurrents going on around you. Um, so yeah, I mean he's got a Logan. He's got a pretty tough teammate in Alex Alban who's you know drags a lot out of the car um again someone that the you can learn from and you know who will I'm sure be quite a, a helpful cooperative presence there but yeah I think that's it's going to be quite a challenge for a rookie going into that team in its current state of competitiveness Logan also has a, a very very steep learning curve um whereas Nick, um, Nick, Nick is an unorthodox rookie, isn't he? Not just the age that he comes into F1 at, a bit like Brendan Hartley did. But unlike Hartley, off the back of increasingly um, extensive F1 
opportunities, both in the real world, but also with a lot of sim work. Um, so, so De Vries obviously has a head start in many ways. He's driven a lot of cars over the years, not necessarily F1 cars. That only really came about in the last year or two. But he's driven lots of different machineries. Obviously, he became a world champion in, in, in Formula E. He's won Formula 2. Um, he just has a ton more experience to call upon in a wider sense, but also in an F1 context, um, in a team that does have a very good, um, a good you know, very good amount of experience of dealing with young drivers, which Williams does in theory, but I don't really know what, as Mark alluded to, what kind of team he he actually is in now. And let's be, I think, realistic. The person who really drove his appointment has now left. Um, I, I, I think that Capito would have been absolutely key to Sargent joining, because obviously Sargent only became part of the Williams Academy a year year before being announced as a race driver. So he's part of that organisation and the guy who brought him in has left. I know that's the same for Alex Albon, but Alex is at least much more established. So will there potentially be a bit less patience for for Sargent behind the scenes? Um, I think he's got a lot of pressure. He's got not much time to, to improve, but a lot to improve on and understand. And he's also a little bit undercooked. You know, Williams wouldn't be putting him into Formula One in 2023 in an ideal world. He was effectively, I think, at least their third choice driver. So... Ideally, he would have had a second year at Formula 2 because he wasn't emphatically convincing in F2. He just had some really high peaks and generally looks like a driver with a really good amount of potential. So he is far from the finished product, whereas De Vries is closely approaching his peak as a driver across the board, whereas Sargent, we've got no idea where that peak is. So very, very, very different rookie circumstances there. Yeah, De Vries is 28 in February, got plenty of experience at Formula E champion, so he comes into F1 with a huge amount of experience for a rookie, which will stand him in good stead. Of course, Sargent had a little bit of prep, did the four Friday outings towards the end of the year, and he was fourth in F2. Second half of the season was a little bit disappointing there. So, yeah, it, it, it's going to be difficult for Sargent. Sometimes you can make a big impression at the back in with low expectations, but, again, he's going to be another one who'll need a kind of nice, confidence-inspiring marker early on just to settle the the nerves and the pressure and if there is a a, a lack of faith in him given he may be seen as a, a capito appointments then that that would settle uh, those concerns well thanks very much scott mitchell malm and mark hughes for your look ahead to 2023 head to the race.com and don't forget the hypheners there'll be plenty there to read throughout the year check out our other podcasts including bring back v10s the race f1 tech show indycar formula e moto gp plenty to listen to and also have a look at our youtube channel well we'll be talking plenty during the upcoming season so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of f1 The Athletic.